Good morning. I uh, invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to uh, do something new. We, we've been studying Nehemiah. We're going we're gonna to cover two chapters today. So I, I believe in you guys. I think you're, you're up for the task. Um, and before we jump into the text, I need to, I think it'd be helpful to provide a little bit of background, like before Nehemiah's story, which we've been studying, uh, this guy named Nehemiah came back to his homeland, came back to his home people and helped him rebuild a wall. That's kind of what we've seen so far. But before that, there was uh, all of Nehemiah's people, the Jews, God's chosen people, they were in another land. And the reason that they were in another land was because they disobeyed God for a very, very long time in very, very bad ways. They disobeyed God. And so God was very patient with them, but eventually God said, hey, there's some consequences to your actions. Uh, you guys are essentially time out. You're kicked out for 70 years. The land that I gave you, you're kicked out. And then God promised after 70 years, I will bring you back. And he did. And first he brought them back through a leader named Zerubbabel. That's a fun name to say, right? Zerubbabel. Uh, and Zerubbabel helped God's people rebuild the temple. And after Zerubbabel uh, did that, there was a gap of about 57 years. And then another leader came named Ezra. We're going to hear about him in our story today. And Ezra helped God's people re reestablish, like start again, worship of God at, at the temple that they built. The, the temple was a place where God's people came together and worshiped God. And then uh, that brings us up to Nehemiah. There was a small, small gap between Ezra and Nehemiah, about 12 years. And Nehemiah is the story that we've been studying basically since the start of this year. Um, so here's the flyover of what we've covered in Nehemiah. Uh, he was a cupbearer to the king. So he, Nehemiah worked for the king. He had a pretty cool job. Uh, he got to drink the king's cup. And if he, Nehemiah didn't die or get sick, then the, then the king got to drink what Nehemiah tested first. He was, he was the cupbearer. And uh, but Nehemiah, when he heard all of God's people back in their homeland, they were in distress and the wall was broken down. Nehemiah was super sad. And, and with his sadness, Nehemiah went to God and said, God, would you do something about this? Essentially, he prayed to God and God answered that prayer. He, God, God let Nehemiah go back uh, and, and, and God also moved the king's heart to give Nehemiah everything they needed to restore the wall and uh, we saw in chapter 3 that Nehemiah didn't fix the wall by himself. It was a community effort. Everybody played a part in, in, in restoring this broken wall. And then in chapter 4, there was some opposition. Some people came that wanted to slow them down. They wanted to put an end to the work. And they, they had to push through that. They had to put their hope in their leader and, and not in their circumstances because their circumstances were hard. That it was really, really hard to do what, they, what God was asking them to do. It was really hard. And then in chapter 5, it got even harder. Because rather than like the enemies opposing them, it was, it was God's very own people taking advantage of each other, acting selfish, self, selfishly. But Nehemiah acted selflessly. He gave of himself. He, he sacrificed himself freely for the benefit of God's people. And then last week in chapter 6, we saw the wall was finished. This, this great project in the midst of many threats, ongoing threats to frighten Nehemiah, to frighten God's people, uh, they finished the wall. So 
Each week as we've gone through this story, we've seen the theme of restoring brokenness together. And, and we've regularly seen that Nehemiah's vision, his goal, was a lot bigger than rebuilding this wall. He spent, they, they spent 52 days getting the wall up. Nehemiah was there for 12 years. So 1% of Nehemiah's time was spent rebuilding the wall. And so we're going to look at the other 99% from here on out. Uh, and I think Nehemiah's time, his, his energy, 99% of it during this time, it was focused on the greater brokenness. More than the wall, the brokenness was within God's people. For them to embrace their identity as God's chosen people and to live that way. So that brings us up to our text today. Uh, we're going to read the first part of chapter 7 and then I'm going to let you skim the rest of chapter 7. So let's read uh, beginning in chapter 7 verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, the, the first part's on the screen. Now when the wall was rebuilt and I, Nehemiah, had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were all appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to these two guys I put in charge, don't let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while, they are still, and while they're standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. So these are instructions about protecting the city from the threat of enemies. The wall's not going to do the protection all by itself. So verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious. Big city. But the people in it were few, and the houses were not yet built. Verse 5. Then God put it into my heart to assemble, to, to bring together the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by families, genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. So remember how we talked about Zerubbabel about 100 years ago, who rebuilt the temple? Verses 6 through the end of chapter 7 is all a record of, of, of them. It's a record of those people. It's, it's a list. So go ahead and scan the rest of this chapter, and you'll get the general picture. So I don't know about you, but I find this kind of confusing. Nehemiah wants to count the people, and then he records a, a hundred-year-old list of their ancestors who came into Jerusalem. It, it took me a while to see that. On, that's what's happening. Nehemiah says, God put it in my heart to count you all. <laughs> like if we were Israel, like God put it in my heart to count you all. Uh, but here's a list a hundred years ago of our ancestors. So why? Why did he do that? Here's what I think. Rather than coming out and saying, 
y'all got to move back into Jerusalem. Like we got to re- we've got to keep rebuilding. I think what he's saying, what what he's he's not even saying it directly. He's implying to them, uh, this is what the former generation did. They sacrificed to be a part of what God was doing. What are you going to do? What what's going to be written about you when we when we are counted? And when, when our record is taken, what are people a hundred years from now going to look back and say about us? I think that's what Nehemiah was implying. I think, there, I think it was a motivational tactic to say, yeah, I mean, we should feel good. The wall is rebuilt and, and we've done some good work together, but we're just getting started. Like, l- let that not be the only part of our legacy as a generation of God's people. Let's aspire to something greater than simply rebuilding the wall. And I think the reason that Nehemiah motivated them like this, rather than just coming out and saying, hey, we gotta, we gotta move back. The city is large and th- there's only a few houses. There's, there's very few people living in the city. So even though we have this wall rebuilt, our, ci- our city is really weak. Rather than him saying that, I think what he's saying is, who do you wanna be? What do you wanna be known for? And, and he's, he's playing to their, their motivations because he knows we all do what makes sense to us. So if it made sense to the people to move back into Jerusalem and to continue the work of restoration, to continue to grow together, then that's what they'd do. But if they just wanted to move out to their own towns, if they just wanted to do their own things now that the wall's rebuilt, that's what they're going to do. We all do what makes sense to us. So... What is the next, so I, I, I hear Nehemiah asking the people the question, I'm, I'm going to count you, but, but you're going to write the rest of the story. What, what's our legacy going to be as a generation? He, here's their legacy a hundred years ago. Now what's ours? So, so he's referencing their ancestry so that the people would remember, oh yeah, that, that's what it was like for those people, our ancestors, they made sacrifices for us to be at the point which we are today. And, and so for us today, I, I think it's the same story. Like we're a year and a half old church. And, uh, and even if you're not sure what church or what community God's calling you to plug into, I, I'd encourage you to answer that question because God is calling you to be a part of something in a community. He's calling you to be a part of something in a group. It's, God's always been restoring brokenness together. It's not just through one or another. It, it's, a, it's a collaborative effort. And so I'm inviting you to ask that same question. I'm inviting us to ask, what, what is our legacy going to be? What's the next generation going to say about who we are and what we did with what God has given us? And, and so, yeah, I'm inviting you to sacrifice. If, if you look back at uh, verse 70, through 72 of chapter 7, it showed the sacrifice of that previous generation. They gave to the work of the temple. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand gold drachmas. And, and, you know, a lot of this doesn't connect with me, but the principle of sacrificing for the next generation, the principle of laying your life down so that others might have life, that really does connect with me because the gospel connects with me. And that's what Christ did. He laid his life down so that others might have life. So to be, a, to, to be a part of something that God is doing 
through us as his people. Um, th- yeah, that, 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 that just connects with me. And, and I'm not saying that we're going to do things perfectly well. Like, we're, we're definitely going to mess up. That's going to be part of our, our legacy. I'm not saying that sacrifice, uh, sacrifice in such a way that leads you to burn out um, because that, I don't think that's pleasing to God. Um, but I do believe no matter who you are, if, if, if you're a Christ follower, uh, you can be someone's spiritual ancestor. You're, you're, I think you're called to be that, to aspire to that. So, uh, and I see that in the Great Commission. Jesus said uh, to his disciples, he said, make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Um, that, that's spiritual ancestry embedded in that command that you would make a disciple and that you would teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And you might think, well, isn't this kind of uh, a pride thing? It, like to, to think, oh, who, you know, that people would remember us. And, and I'll answer that more fully later, but no. Like, yes, yes and no. <laughs> it's a pride thing because we all have mixed motives. Uh, honestly, the first time that I got clarity um, that God was calling me into vocational ministry full-time, uh, I cried because a lot of my, I, I recognized my motive for pride and to be the, the sinner, and, and that, that grieved me. But I talked to other people about it, and, and they affirmed it, and they, they, they also said, we're all a mixed bag. You, you need to be aware of your tendency towards pride. So, so when we aspire to be spiritual ancestors to other people um in a sense you should be proud of that because god's calling you to it and in another sense um we we really shouldn't so yeah i I think the the application of this text uh to move towards spiritual ancestry it's hard and uh it'll expose weakness within us but i just encourage us and i as a church i believe we're doing it but just keep embracing that weakness. Keep embracing Christ and his mission. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's going to look different for each of us. Um, but it's important that each, each person plays their part. Uh, so Nehemiah was calling God's people to remember, to remember, to remember their ancestors as they moved forward. But... He didn't just stop there. Um, he's not just saying, well, they did it, so I guess we should too. Uh, Nehemiah wants them to hear from God themselves and respond uh, for themselves as well. So now let's read chapter 8, and we'll see three ways that the people responded uh, from, from hearing God through his word themselves. So chapter 8. Nehemiah writes, And all the people, they gathered as one man at the square in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest, so he was a priest and a scribe, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Ezra read read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. So if you think my sermons go long, early morning to midday. They're not that long. 
in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe, he stood at a wooden podium which they'd made just for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand. And then a bunch of other guys on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was standing above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people said, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bana, Serebiah, Jamin, Echab, Echab, uh, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites. Restoring brokenness together, right? There's a lot of names in here. They all explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, they all said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go eat, the, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for today is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households, of all the people, the priests and the Levites, they were gathered, they came back to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel, they should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Remember, like they were reading this during the seventh month and then, and then they saw, oh, look at this instruction for, for this time. So what they do? They proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, uh, just as it is written, to make booths. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square and in the other square. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity, they made booths and they lived in those booths. The sons of Israel hadn't done this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, so there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law daily, from the first day to the last and they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So th this, this whole sermon, it's about worship. And the first half in chapter seven, it was about remembering in worship, remembering the ancestry, being challenged in our remembrance of who God is and what he's done. That, that's part of our worship. Another part of our worship is to respond. So we remember, but we just don't think about it. That, I mean, that's part of worship, but we also have to respond in our worship. And so we see three ways. I just want to highlight three ways that they responded that we also should respond in the same ways. And the first response that I see is that they responded together. All of this is done communally. Um, 
It's a book full of names, if you didn't notice. (laughs) Uh, They even had a list of people on Ezra's right and left. And the nature of God's restoring work, it's, it's communal, it's relational. Relationship with God, relationship with people. So if the next step for you is to get into a small group, uh, I'd encourage you to do that. If the next step for you is to decide, God, what is the church that you're calling me to plug into? And, and I'm all for the, the global church, but I believe that no one can be plugged into the global church without being plugged into the local church. And if you've got qualms with that, I'm happy to talk. Like, uh, it, that's not just my opinion. That's, that's kind of prevailing wisdom. Um, and then... Uh, if, if, if the next step for you is you're in a small group, you're, you're, you're plugged in to a local church, um, then, then really, you know, do life together. <laughs> because you could be in groups and not really be known. I mean, you know, it, it can happen. So, so whatever it is, I'd encourage you to take the next steps to respond in worship together. Worship is a communal thing. And there's freedom. There's freedom in this worship. As we see, it's together, but it's also, there's some freedom. Like some people, I don't think the worship leader told them, okay, now faces to the ground. Okay, now hands up. (laughs) So we we don't vocalize this every week, but I want you to know the invitation every single week in our worship is uh, you can stand up, you can sit down, you can kneel, you can come to the front. You can dance in the aisles. You can. And, uh, and you might be thinking, well, uh, Ben, wouldn't that be distracting for everyone else? And I mean, yeah, maybe, but this is the safest place that there is. Right now on the continuum, and, and, and I'll just say this, I'll just say this. I have, no, I have no picture in my mind, oh, I, I want our church to look like this during worship. I want our hearts to look a certain way. I believe God wants our hearts to look a certain way during worship. And, and, you know, and and we need to be obedient to to our our bodies expressing that as the Holy Spirit leads. Joshua is, is, is leading us in worship, but he's really just trying to join with what God's Spirit is doing in in making uh, communal worship conducive so he, he he's just serving us we we've all got to listen to the spirit and, and if and if you get easily distracted or if you're concerned like okay i think god's telling me to raise my hand but everyone's going to look at me when i raise my hand just close your eyes or if someone's raising their hand and you're just like gosh that really distracts me honestly for like when i was a kid growing up and i saw people on the stage like waving their hands it was distracting to me that's what i, I just fixated on that just close your eyes. Worship, worship is about God. Worship is about remembering God, responding to God. And it's done together. So I mean, like, if we really do things together, there's gonna be friction. There's gonna be misunderstanding. There's gonna be differences, right? (laughs) I think so. That's what my experience, that's what the Bible implies to me. So worship, we respond together. Hey, Wyatt. (laughs) Sorry to put you on the spot, honey.
The second way, the second way that they responded is by doing, doing what they heard. They heard the word of God and their heart was to do it. Remember, like they, they were looking into the law and it's like, oh, on this day, you should celebrate a feast to God in this way. And they're like, that's this week. We should do that now. <laughs> let's go get the supplies we need and let's go obey. So w- with that, uh, I just want to encourage any of you who don't really feel knowledgeable about the Bible, like that's okay. God's not impressed. And, and we as a community of faith, we don't want to be impressed with what you know. We want to be impressed with how we respond, with obedience. Like, you know, Jesus at the end of the great, great sermon on the mount, Jesus' point with the parable of the wise man who built his house on the rock, his, his whole point was this guy heard and obeyed. That's, that's what it means to build your house on the rock is to hear and obey. So if all you know is one, two, maybe three verses, uh, that's, that's, that's a great start. That's awesome. I'd rather you know two or three verses than two or three books by heart. I'd rather you do two or three verses. That's what God is trying to move us towards, is truth that transforms. And so, when, when, so what this means practically is like when you're having your quiet time, when you're listening to a sermon, when you're uh, uh, listening to worship music, when, when you're in small group, you're, you're, you're always looking for application. You're always looking for God what do you want me to do? What, how do you want me to respond? And, and that doesn't mean that you always get it. You don't always get it, but that's, that's the orientation of our heart is, God, would you change me? Would you show me what steps to take next? So they, they, they responded in worship by doing what they heard. And then the third way that they responded, this is the last one, um, and this is the one that just sticks with me the third way that they responded in worship is they did what they, they didn't feel like doing. Did, did you catch? I mean, this might be the most popular verse in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength, but did you catch the context? It's a bunch of people grieving how wrongly they've been living. They either hadn't heard or they hadn't wanted to hear God's word for years maybe, like just a period of time. And then they heard it and they realized how broken they were, how much they'd fallen short. But this is the response. Ezra basically says, don't grieve, party. Don't grieve, party. And so I think it's right to grieve over our sin. I mean, that's, that's right and biblical, but uh, there, there needs to be party after the grief. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which brings about joy. It, it doesn't disappoint. So, so they, they didn't feel like celebrating. They felt like pity party. They felt like, woe is me. I've fallen short. Let's, let's throw a big pity party. And he's like, no, let, let's have a real party. Let's celebrate the joy of the Lord being our strength. And they, they're willing to obey, even though they don't, they don't feel like Responding that way, like, like preparing a big feast, eating of the fat, drinking of the sweet, and preparing for those who don't have any of that, but they did it anyway. And I, I just want to say, if, if we choose to make choices like that, our passion for God our, our, 
experience of intimacy with God, it will grow if we choose to make choices like that. I feel this way, I feel this way, but this is what God said. And then we see it at the end as well. They're, they're, uh, they're solemn because the ordinance said to be solemn at the end of the Feast of Booths. That's in the very last verse. So, so they do what they don't feel like because this is what God has said. And so to conclude, worship is not just singing songs. Worship is whatever we value most. And that means that everyone at this moment, everyone who's breathing, they're worshiping. They're choosing something that's valuable to them. They're choosing to do this and not to do this, to spend their time and their money here and not there. They're remembering certain things. They're responding to certain things. We all worship. And so as we, as we aspire to worship more and more purely, as we aspire to worship rightly, we have to remember that Jesus is the, he, he's the model of our worship. Yes, he is and always has been God, but he took on humanity to show us how to live lives of worship. In the midst of temptations, in the midst of great suffering, he always valued the right thing the most. God. He always valued relationship with God first. And so, as we worship, and as we aspire to leave a legacy, we can do that without being proud because we know that all legacy belongs to Jesus. All legacy ultimately belongs to Jesus. So we don't aspire great things for ourselves, but we aspire them for Jesus' sake. And that's part of our worship. So let's pray and just talk with God about your life be honest with him about what you really value most. Jesus, thank you for dying and being raised back to life so that no matter how we feel, the joy of the Lord being our strength, it, it's accessible. It's, it's right there. And we have to make choices, yes. And even forming habits is good and healthy. But... Uh, yeah, we're, we're invited into this life of worship. So would you help us say, say no to the things that compete with you as our highest value?